powerful men in the world. It was front and center in the Bolshevik Revolution of 1917. After that, he became the editor of the Soviet newspaper Pravda, and he was a leading member of the Politburo. In 1930, he traveled from Moscow to Kiev to address a large crowd on the subject of atheism. He spoke for nearly an hour, attacking Christianity in every way that he could. When he was done, there was silence in this large room. And all of a sudden, one individual jumped to his feet, looked around the crowd, and at the very top of his lungs, issued the well-known phrasing in the Russian Orthodox Church. Christ is risen. And the whole crowd stood up and responded, he is risen indeed. And I say to you this morning that Christ is risen. He is. And this is the pivotal moment in all of human history. Scripture actually says if this didn't happen, Christianity is is really kind of a cruel joke and should just be put aside. Our text this morning is Mark chapter 16. We had it read to us just prior to me getting up here this morning. And we see in this text that the women, the three ladies from verse 1, are eyewitnesses to the most pivotal moment in human history. And when they saw what they saw, they took what I would call the step. And later in this service, I will give you an opportunity to take that step yourself, if you've never done that. And so I invite you to be listening, to be considering, and saying, is this the kind of step I want to take? You know, there's many reasons that we believe that the resurrection is literally historically true, that it's a fact. We certainly can't cover all of them. We can't cover all the extra biblical literature that talks about this, the number of scriptures there are. But we're going to look, depending on the time, at three to five reasons we would believe that the resurrection is true. When they saw him, it says in verse 8 that he was resurrected. They were trembling, these ladies. They were bewildered, and they ran, and they didn't tell anyone initially. And this is not the greatest launch to this movement. If somebody is making up a story, they're not likely going to include those kinds of facts, because at least at the very initial stages, it kind of undermines initially what happened. And if you're trying to manufacture something. You're not going to typically include those kinds of ideas or facts. This is one of the things that sets Christianity apart from every faith in the world, that we trace our origins back to a moment in history, and to my knowledge, there's no such equivalent idea in Buddhism or Judaism or Islam or atheism, the religion of atheism. 
But there are four historical biographies of the life of Christ, as well as the extra-biblical writings that support this, where this truth is mentioned. And in the early days of the church, the believers of the Lord Jesus Christ absolutely were convinced and were willing to put everything on the line for this belief that Jesus was risen from the dead. Now in our day, I think many people still think that resurrection is kind of, you know, good news, but they're not really sure that it's true news. They think that it's good news, pleasant news maybe, but they're not so sure that it's true news. And they're thinking, I don't know for sure, but it might go something like this. You know, they might say, well, in ancient days, people were sincere, but they were sincerely ignorant, and they didn't have science like we do, and therefore they were gullible. And when Jesus died, they didn't want to let him go or the idea that he represented. And so over the years, it just sort of became a manufactured rumor that he was still alive. Sort of like those people that think, you know, that Elvis is still alive running a pawn shop in Vegas. That kind of thinking. But that version only works if you don't understand how people thought back then. Because when this happened, it was just the opposite for them of the way we often think about it. Because the women knew that it was true news... Because they saw it, they were eyewitnesses to it, but it took them a while to figure out that it was good news. Just the opposite of the way we look at it. They knew it was true news, they couldn't deny what they were seeing. They were far from sure that it was good news. And so let's take a few minutes to try and look at that through their eyes and the lives of the other believers in the early church. Because there's a backstory to resurrection, and it's a very powerful reason to believe that it actually happened. Because people in the first century and in that time period, when they heard the idea of resurrection, they had a variety of ideas of what that meant or didn't mean. And it's kind of like, I don't like scary movies. I don't go to scary movies. I don't watch scary movies. But there's this scary movie called The Sixth Sense. I haven't seen the movie, but I've read about it. And my understanding, it's a 20-year-old movie. My understanding in that movie is that the, the chief character, Bruce Willis, hears a famous tagline from this kid. And the kid looks at him and says, I see dead people. You ever sat beside someone during a scary movie and... They reach over and they take your hand and the scarier the show gets, the harder they squeeze it until finally Debbie turns to me and says, unless you let go of my hand, I'm changing seats. Apparently there's a twist at the end of this movie and if you're like me and you haven't seen it and you don't want to know how it ends, I'm really sorry that you're with us today. The main character, Bruce Willis, realizes at this point that he is one of the dead guys. Never saw that coming. And I want you to keep that in mind for the end of this talk, that actually he was one of the dead guys. He never saw it coming. 
People have always wondered, what happens to me when I die? And during the time that this was all unfolding, there was some different views on the idea of resurrection. In the ancient world, some people believed when you die, you just go out like a candle, you know? A lot of people believe that now. Ancient tombstones would have the epitaph both in Latin and in Greek. They would write stuff like this, I was not, I was, I am not, I don't care. Which is an incredibly discouraging way to go through life, in my view. And it also means you've got to have this huge tombstone to get all the writing on it. Other people thought that when you died, there was a place called Hades, It was an underworld where when you died, your departed soul would go there in death, but you would never come back to life. In Israel, they had an idea of resurrection, but it's different than what we understand. And this time, this understanding of resurrection was in place long before Jesus walked the face of the earth. It originated during the time of the Greeks. And their idea of resurrection was, you're not just going to die and then be resurrected later because the world is such a mess. There's all this pain and suffering that obviously we can't fix, and to this day we can't fix it. And their idea was, why in the world would you want to be resurrected during this mess? And so the mess needs to get cleaned up first. And so for them, resurrection was the idea that the great God who created everything would one day clean up the mess. Then he would bring the righteous back to life and he would redeem them and heal all of creation and they would be resurrected into a God-perfected, God-redeemed life and he would forgive the sins of the people. He would establish judgment, he would justice rather, and he would end suffering. And all of this is done on this massive scale, but resurrection, and this is what's important, didn't happen until the end of history. This is how they understood it. And so the Israelites, it would never occur to them that resurrection would happen in the middle of history. This is why the women knew that it was true news because they saw it with their eyes. But they didn't really think it was good news because their reaction, the way they'd always been taught to think, is, well, has disease been eradicated? Has justice broken out? Has suffering ended? This doesn't equate with what we've been taught to believe because we've been taught to believe that resurrection happens at the end of time, not at the middle of time. A number of years ago, I was asked to speak at a forum at the university on Christianity, and I was supposed to, if I remember, I was given like 15 minutes to present sort of a bit of a Christian worldview, and a couple of other people spoke on other subjects. And then there was a Q&A at the end, and I was asked a question during the Q&A, and I presume it's by someone that had this mindset, might have been a Jewish person, I don't really know. But they said this to me, here was their question, I thought it was an interesting question, they said this, if Jesus was who he said he was, then why is there still pain in childbirth? Because in their thinking, I'm presuming a bit here, but in their thinking, 
resurrection goes hand in hand with everything already having, having been fixed. Now here comes Jesus, and he teaches with an authority that is unprecedented. He, he is saying things they've never heard before. He is claiming an intimacy with God the Father. In fact, on numerous occasions, he claims to be God. And that's an offense in that culture, punishable by death. And so on different occasions, they try to kill him when he claims to be God. Before Abraham was, I am. They pick up stones to stone him. And he walks away. His followers, and we've examined this in the last couple of weeks, his followers didn't really understand, they didn't really comprehend, they didn't appreciate all that the Older Testament talked about in terms of who Messiah really was, but they believed, having said that, even though they didn't really connect all the dots, they still believed he was Messiah. But then he died. And when that happened, not one of his followers were going, Woohoo! All right, I love it when a plan comes together. None of them thought, This is a good thing. In fact, when it was happening, You know the story, when they come to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane on trumped-up charges, they've paid people off to lie, all of his disciples, all his leadership team, abandon him and run for their life. And the Gospels paint a very unflattering picture of his followers. It says they were disheartened, they were dismayed, they were disappointed, they were disillusioned, all of the above. And they, they scurry off in the dark and they go and try and find a place to hide. And they assume the authorities are coming for us next and we are going to die a horrible, horrible death. And all of a sudden, they weren't hiding anymore. Even though they had been taught all their lives... This is not how it's going to play out. This runs totally contrary to what we believe and have been taught. This is why when the women say to them, he's risen from the dead, they go, forget it, not a chance. And then he appears to two people we read in the text, and they go and tell all the the disciples, they go, no way, we don't believe it. Because resurrection doesn't happen in the middle of history, it happens at the end. But we know as a matter of historical record, they were now convinced when they saw him that he had risen from the dead. And they spread the news as they're instructed to do by Jesus at the end of Mark 16. They spread the news with power, but at enormous personal cost. We read in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus appeared to 500 people a number of times over a period of 40 days. And then they are filled with the Spirit 10 days after that on the day of Pentecost and they go out and they begin to spread the news and we know that, and this is very significant, I would suggest unprecedented in history, individually or in small groups, not in a big mass, over a long period of time, some decades, most if not all of those people lost their job, lost their family, lost their homes, lost their friends, 
lost their freedom, and many, many of them lost their lives for this. So it's not a a big mass of people that it all happened to at one moment in history. It was individuals or small groups of people over a long period of time for their belief that this was true. What would you be prepared to lose all of that for if you knew it was a lie? Think about that. Would you go through all that they went through and watch other people die horrible deaths knowing it's my turn next and I know this is all fabricated. I know this is all a lie. Would you go from doubting to being willing to die unless you're absolutely convinced it was true? Some people think, well, we are modern and we're not backward like them, and so we know better. C.S. Lewis, one of the greatest intellects of the 20th century, wrote and calls this chronological snobbery. He goes on to write, ancient people were not stupid. They knew dead things tend to stay dead. Ken Davis writes about this woman who looks out her window And she sees her German shepherd shaking this dead rabbit that he's killed. And she knows this is the neighbor's rabbit, pet rabbit. And her family and the neighbors don't get along very well. So she goes, ah, and she runs out there. She wrestles the rabbit away from the dog. She takes the rabbit inside, she gives it a bath, she blow dries its hair and sneaks into their yard and props it up in the the cage for the rabbit in their backyard. And a short time later, she hears her neighbor screaming. She runs over there and the neighbor is screaming, our rabbit, our rabbit died a few days ago. We buried him and now he's back. You know, people in the ancient world knew that rabbits that are dead tend to stay dead. N.T. Wright, acknowledged by many as the greatest and greatest living scholar on this time in history in the New Testament, who's taught at the University of St. Andrews and is, works at Oxford now, has written this. There were many messianic movements in the first century. If you know anything about history, you know there's all kinds of little Messiah figures popping up in history. And little bands of people would gather together with them. There were many, he writes, there are many messianic movements in the first century. In every case, would-be messiahs got crucified by Rome, just as Jesus did. Not in one single case do we hear the slightest mention of the disappointed followers claiming their hero had been raised from the dead. They knew better. So what happened, as you read it in ancient history, is if your Messiah figure got crucified and most of his followers killed, he went home and went looking for a new Messiah. He didn't claim he was risen from the dead. The Gospels are absolutely clear. The followers of Jesus thought it's all over. He's dead. They're going to come for us. 
Who's going to sell us out? We're going to die a horrible death. But then two things happened. It says in verse 6 and 7, Don't be alarmed, the young man, the angel said to them. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him, but go, tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you into the Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Two things happened that make a very strong case. The tomb is empty, and Jesus appeared to his followers. So if it was just that there was an empty tomb, but Jesus didn't appear, skeptics would just say, wow, somebody just robbed the grave. But of course, one of the things you got to remember back then is you got a Roman guard on the tomb. If you fell asleep on the job, you know, you didn't just get your pay docked or get a, a letter of reprimand in your personal jacket. In those days, if that happened, you were executed. And so they're highly motivated not to fall asleep on the job. They knew their life was forfeit if someone came in and robbed the grave. Would not happen. Paul writes, as I said earlier, that Jesus appeared over a period of 40 days to more than 500 of his followers, starting with the women, then the two people on the road to Emmaus, then the 11 disciples, Judas has already killed himself, and then a bunch of other of his followers, 500 of them. Paul writes all this stuff in the years just after the resurrection of Christ. And many of the 500 people are still alive at this point. Remember, they're dying individually or in small groups over a long period of time. Many of these people are still alive. If Paul is making this stuff up in 1 Corinthians, the living people are going to say, whoa, 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 that never happened. We saw this stuff. If on the other hand, people just said, well, we saw Jesus moving around, but the tomb still had the body. The skeptics would have been saying things like, these guys have just been drinking too much, they're dreaming, they're hallucinating, and the Romans would have produced a body. Another reason we know this to be historical fact is just based in verse 1. It's three women that go to the tomb. And we tend not to notice things like that. What's the big deal? Three ladies notice this stuff. But understand, in that time frame, in ancient Egypt, this is a huge deal. Not God's idea. This was never God's approach to things. But in that culture, they treated women as being lower in status. Certainly not God's idea, but their idea. Women were not considered credible witnesses at that time. They weren't allowed to testify in court. And yet, all four Gospels, all four historical biographies of Jesus record the women as being the first witnesses of his resurrection. One of the ways, one of many ways, that God shows us that women are equally valued, equally loved by God as men are. Here's the thing. If you're going to make up stories like this, in that culture it makes absolutely no sense to say women were the first eyewitnesses. 
In that culture, you needed to be a male that was at least 30 years of age to really have standing in that society. And to say that women were the eyewitnesses, the first eyewitnesses, would have radically undermined your claim. So really, the only plausible exclamation here, explanation here is that they're just telling the truth, the unvarnished truth. Here's what really happened. We found the tomb empty. And it wasn't just that they had a good feeling about this, or they were going, oh, this would be cool if we made up this idea that he rose from the dead. No, Jesus was alive, and they were willing to die for that truth. Let me take you back to Bruce Willis. When God looks at you, he's a dead person. God looks at you, he's a dead person. Some of us don't even realize it. Many of us don't. The Bible says that we're dead in our sins. We're completely cut off from God. There's this unpassable, unbreachable chasm between ourselves and God. The good news is this, and we've been talking about good news every day for 40 days now, in the days leading up to Easter and at different points through the opening months of the year. And you're going to hear this talked about over and over again through the year. The good news is this, Jesus rose from the dead. And by doing this, he has offered to us resurrection life, which means he addressed the issue of why we can't have a relationship with God, which is because of our choices, our sinful choices. He conquered sin and death, which is the result of sin, by going to the cross and rising from the dead. He offers forgiveness of our sin. He offers healing. He offers redemption. The Bible uses the word atonement. He offers to remove guilt and shame. And all of this is accomplished through Christ. And it, it has this already and not yet element to it that we often see in Scripture that positionally God looks at us and we are saved and yet we're going to be resurrected. And so there's that already and not yet element to it. Here's where it gets incredibly personal. Each one of us can choose to move from being a dead person, cut off from God, to being alive in Christ. This is what Jesus says, okay? This is the words of Jesus. In verses 15 and 16, go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. Now listen to the line in the sand he draws. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Just doesn't get much plainer than that. We're dead and be alive in Christ, but there's a decision to be made. Today you can make the choice if you've never made that choice to make the step. Receive what Jesus did on your behalf. Nobody can choose this for you. You can't pay for it. You can't earn it. You can simply choose to receive what he offers. 
you have to surrender your life. It's really hard for us. We have to trust entirely in Christ, which is really hard for us. We have to ask him to forgive our sin because this is really the point of why he went to the cross. We have to ask him to forgive us for our sin, to be our savior, and then to just surrender our life, humble our life and say, Lord, with your help, I'm leaving my old life behind. And I want to surrender my life to you and I want you to be in charge. I want you to be the leader of my life, the Lord of my life. And we put him, and so there's this idea that one day like him, we will be resurrected, that's to come, and all eternity. But right now, he walks with us every day. He uses us, he shapes us, he molds us, he's in charge. And I, in giving my life to him, in taking this step, I'm saying I'm prepared to follow you, to grow in my relationship with you for the rest of my life. And so Jesus just asks very bluntly in this verse 16, have you taken that step? Have you chose to move from death to life? From being dead to resurrected life? Today is the day when you can take this step if you've never done it. He's really saying to you, I want you to move on from this simply being a good idea or a pleasant idea from good news to being true news. Promises in John chapter 11, verse 26. Whoever believes, sorry, rather, whoever lives and believes in me will never die. This, this is much more than simply saying, yeah, I think there's a God. Biblical belief results in all-in commitment. It, it, it results in a changed life. It, it's never half-hearted. And so the people that have simply said, yeah, I think there's a God, I'm going to be sad to say they're going to be on the outside looking in when that day comes. Whoever lives and believes in me will never die. In just a moment, I'm going to give you a chance to take the step, commit your life to Christ. And, but I, as I always do at moments like this, let me explain to you what will happen. So you're not surprised going, oh, I didn't know that was going to happen. So... I'm going to ask everyone here in the sanctuary and in the gym and at home to bow your head and close your eyes in just a moment. And if you've never received Christ and you'd like to receive Christ, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand in the auditorium here or in the gym. Our online person right now on the chat section running beside the picture, you can just click on the bottom and the chat section will come up if you haven't already. We'll put a little icon up that you can, you can mark. And I'm going to pray, and I'm going to ask you to follow along with me. You can pray out loud. You can just pray between yourself and God. And then when you're done, I'm going to ask you to go tell someone. Scripture talks about this, acknowledging God before others. It helps solidify what God has done in your life. For those of you that are here that are already part of God's family, already child of God, I want you to be praying for the people that are about to receive Christ. So I'm going to invite everyone to bow their head now and close their eyes. And if you would like to receive Christ, and I can only see in here, I can't, there's other people in the gym watching or 
online. If you'd like to receive Christ this morning, I'm going to invite you to just raise your hand right now and keep your hand up so I can see it. Okay. Go ahead and raise your hand if you'd like to receive Christ this morning. Well, I'm going to pray with you now, and uh, you can put your hand down. Let's pray, and you follow along with me. Lord Jesus, how thankful we are that you came and gave your life for me, that you rose from the dead. I realize now that the reason you did this provide a way for my sin to be forgiven. I admit that I've done sinful things. I ask for your forgiveness for my sin. I trust you and you alone At the same time, and equally so, I surrender my life to you. I invite you to be the Lord of my life, the leader. I don't know what all that's going to mean, but I trust you. I pray you would lead me each day. Thank you for forgiveness. Thank you for right relationship with God. Thank you that one day, like Jesus, pray these things now in Jesus' precious name.